Hello, hi, my name is Steve Allman, and I cannot tell you that everything will be okay, but if you keep paying attention, the important things will be okay. Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. It's great to have you here. Maybe you found it on Spotify or iTunes or SoundCloud, whatever, well done. Uh, it's great to have you here. This week is a is a really deep personal conversation for me because it is the long-awaited stoner chat. What the hell does that mean? You know what that means because you've been paying attention. It means that I've invited the one and only Steve Almond onto this show to talk about, in my opinion, one of the greatest books that was ever written by a guy called John Williams, and the book is called Stoner. So... Yes, I, I have given copies of this book to previous guests that I've interviewed. I've spoken about it at length with you and with friends and with guests. Oh my God, endlessly. So finally, I think after this conversation, we can draw a line under it. But having said that, it might come up again. But this is a long one. It's a long episode for a very good reason because it deserves it. I think the subject matter is is extraordinarily deep in terms of obviously subject matter, but mainly because of the personal effect it had on me and Steve over the. I mean, he's he's read this book like fourteen, fifteen times. He's even gone to the lengths of writing a book about it. So we talk about that process. The book is absolutely fantastic. So if you've read Stoner, I thoroughly recommend reading um, the, the book that Steve's written, William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life. You can get that via his website or Amazon. You can get that via his website. So his website is stevealmondjoy.org. Almond spelt A-L-M-O-N-D, as you would expect. But... Everything you want is on that website, so that's stevealmondjoy.org. Steve's also written a whole bunch of other books. Most notably, I'm reading reading one at the moment called Bad Stories. Well, okay, I haven't. I've, I've read it, and I read it about a month and a half ago, and it's fantastic. It's, again, a very forensic look into why why people did what they did in terms of voting for Donald Trump, and it's a very heartfelt Walk like warming, but this, this, and also quite disturbing. Look into why people did what they did in voting in Trump, but it has a lot of. I I feel like there are answers in there. They're really as because Steve is a very honest and profoundly. Um, I don't know what this what the word to use with this Steve actually, but he's a kind man. He's a very warm person, and he and that is all over his writing. Um, he's unjudgmental, man. He's he's fantastic. And if you've come across his podcast that he did with Cheryl Strayed, Dear Sugar, well done. You did a great thing there. If you haven't, I suggest you check it out because it helped me a lot. It, it helped my wife. It helped my friends. It, it's a fantastic show. And believe it or not, Laura, my wife, actually appears on the podcast towards the end of the show. So I'm really excited for that as well because you get to hear who I'm married to. You know, it's, 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 that's interesting. But yeah, look, I'll, um, I'll leave, I'll leave, I'll leave it 
for now because I think it's a very long show. And like I said, if you want to break this up over the week, please do. You you know you're not gonna it's not gonna ruin it the experience. Um, if anything, it's it's almost like an audio book. You can just revisit it. But yeah, I do encourage you to go and visit Steve's website. Check out his work. You'll get you'll get the bug man for this guy. He is so intuitive. He's an adorable man. He comes from the right place, and the book about Stoner that he's he's read is it also delves so deeply into his own personal life. You cannot believe how honest and I would say sacrificial he is about with his honesty about his own condition about his journey in his life. You know, and he's so poetic about it. He he is wonderful, a wonderful man, and it's funny because. I spoke with Paul Salapak not too long ago for this show, um, for his Out of uh, Out of Eden walk, his project for the National Geographic. And it, this guy is amazing. Anyway, I mentioned it to Steve, and he said, I think Paul is one of the greatest men in the world. So I've got two amazing human beings on the show this week and then next Sunday. So I can't wait. I'm excited. I know I've, I've, I've waffled on a bit here, but it's only because it means so much to me. This guy really, really means a lot to me and, and what the work that he's done with Cheryl Strayed for Dear Sugar. So yeah, just before I go, um, if you feel like checking out my website to check out the short film I did not so long ago, it's somedaysadiamonds.co.uk and I'd really appreciate your support on that one. It really does mean an awful lot and of course we've got Wednesday coming got a really awesome chat with um, with the Corets, a band that I just uh, had a really good chat with awesome people uh, check out their music the Corets, fan- like 60s influence Phil Spector big sound wall of sound but absolutely so joyful very very well worth checking out So look after yourself and I will see you soon. I will see you very soon. And yeah, enjoy the show as always. Because the thing is with with your book, man, is just, oh God, it's so weird. Like every time I've, Stoner really obviously it touched touched me deeply and obviously goes <laughs> without saying it touched you and like there's another book that um kind of it doesn't go doesn't go hand in hand with Stoner but it's like I think it's called Some Days All My Friends Will Someday All My Friends Will Be Strangers by Larry McMurtry. Mm-hmm. Um and like I would say it's quite weird because I connected in, in um Thailand with Stoner for the first time five, six years ago. And then I was this this really random american guy who was like i guess he was like about 65 70 and he was you tell you could tell he'd been traveling the world for a very long time you know mm. and he was just a bit odd bit something wasn't quite right but he had an amazing like encyclopedic knowledge on on um books particularly his favorites anyway and he gave me this book someday all your friends will be strangers and i i just man it just at the right place at the right time because i just finished this other book it was a little bit like it and um, just blew my mind. And and with Stoner as well, it was the same. It was like, mm. it just caught me. It's, I know, you know, like sometimes when you just feel like you don't know how much you were falling at the time 
and then a book comes along and it just stops you and catches you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. The thinking of it like that. And that is, um, you know, books have this way and, and, and movies can do this as well. And, and, you know, visual art and certainly music can do this. The books have this way because they're so immersive and because you've, you're in their world for a long time. Yeah. Uh, as many times as I listen to, uh, well, maybe, maybe, uh, uh, listening to, a long symphony or an opera would have this kind of immersive experience for a music person. But, um, you know, novels are like you are in that world for a series of days or weeks of incredibly concerted attention and imaginative empathy. You kind of go into the world of that character and you, if something good or is going to happen, you have that feeling embodied feeling of like, I'm looking forward to the possibility of this. And if yeah. something awful is going on, Edith appears in the doorway that, you know, she's going to take Grace away. You feel uh, a very internal sense of, of dread, oh, God. That, you know, th- yeah. that is more real than whatever is happening around you because you've given yourself, you've given your attention to that world. Maybe it's safer to give your full attention and full emotion to that kind of sublimated world. And so people are, I, I very much like thinking of that way of like certain books catch you and you could be falling or you could be, you know, just in strange terrain. Hmm. Me, I was not in Thailand. As you know, I was just in North Carolina trying to figure yeah. out sort of if writing and was going to be or write creative writing, whatever that means, was going to be sort of the path. And I just and I didn't realize yet that I really wanted to be a teacher and, you know, and, and so when I read Stoner, all kinds of things were getting activated, some of them consciously, but lots of them unconsciously. Like, mm. I had no idea. Oh, I'm fundamentally a masochistic person who's going to engineer a whole bunch of shitty feuds and who's going to f- screw up relationships. And like, I, you know, maybe I had some sense that I was in that business, but I didn't see much of it. Yeah. But but unconsciously, I I connected to Stoner in, you know, I think maybe books are even more powerful when we're only partly, only a little bit conscious of why they have such a deep impact on us. Um, yeah. No, it is extraordinary. It's, it's, it is extraordinary because I think I, I would have. I, I mean, I, I've, I would have done a preamble to this and talk, and spoken a bit about the book to explain to people a bit. But obviously, I, I'm also this is going to go out in a few weeks' time. Um, maybe five or six weeks. So I'm going to give people a heads up to read it. Um, and, oh, those yeah. th- and those that haven't can just fuck off and listen to another episode. And those that have can tune in and, and get, you know, deep in, deep into the podcast. But I, for, for me, background is, is super important. What you just touched on there, you know, like the sub subconsciously, that's a big thing for people to like comprehend, you know, because not everyone would have connected with a book like Stoner or indeed maybe not even connected yet with a book that, that is so much in their heart. Like, um, I'd sort of say the grapes of wrath would, would be mine when I was 27. I woke, I, I literally just woke up, um, from work. Had, I was, I was at work, miserable job, uh, outside freezing cold mm-hmm. and just found this secondhand copy of uh, grapes of wrath in a train station and changed, yeah, changed my completely fucking changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everyone's going to have that experience, and but probably most people will that 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 even have half an interest in books. But what what you're touching on there is really interesting, like that sort of like that subconscious what's working underneath. You know, you've read the book, but it continues to work underneath. Could you like maybe 
expand on that a bit more like yeah i mean so so uh, nabokov has this great saying like there's no there's no such thing as reading you're just you're 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 constantly rereading uh or novels are really not meant to be read they're meant to be reread and what he's after there i'm probably mangling the quote but the idea is that novels built into the world of a novel or or any piece of of sort of long-form nonfiction is an intricate enough world and a complex enough world and it corkscrews deeply enough into your internal world that every time you read it it's a different book and you know when i first read stoner i was like okay i i too the university is going to save me i too am going to you know sort of enter the holy church of literature coming out of journalism i'm going to like you know read and write and devote myself monastically to the production of literature even if it's arcane and obscure and it's out of the mainstream that's okay there's a purity to it there's a moral seriousness blah 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 and you know, as I moved through my life, what the, I tried to organize the book in a way to sort of say, and then it became a book about, about feuds and the way that we engineer them and escalate them without realizing we're doing that. And, you know, out of us sort of loyalty to the turmoil and sorrow of our childhood. Right. And then it yeah. became a book about, um, you know, sort of a, a, a difficult about teaching when I was in that phase of being an adjunct and really bad at it, but trying very hard to to sort of say that this is my calling. How do I get better at it? How do I get less self-conscious? How do I transmit attention and love to my students and make them excited about this thing that I'm excited by? Mm-hmm. And then it became about, you know, marriage and how brutally that reveals us. And then it became about being a parent and, and built into any novel. Stoner is the one that, that I've read over and over again, but built into any great work of literature are a whole bunch of different stories. And depending on where you are in your life, you connect to them, it becomes a different book. It's it's reading you as much as you're reading it. And it's funny that you mentioned The Grapes of Wrath, William, because I too was completely smitten by that book yeah, yeah. As, as a young reader. And the end of, in fact, the last um, sort of little story, uh, before I wrote uh, William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life, I wrote this book called Bad Stories, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country, that was kind of coming out of the, the election in the United States in 2016 and sort of the sudden um, sort of appearance and aggrandizement and growth and eventual election, however crookedly, of, mm. of Trump. And the book wasn't about him, but he was the particular – I was trying to examine what happened through the lens of storytelling and so I, and through the lens of literature. So, for instance, I was like, well, you know – you have to read Moby Dick and you have to understand Ahab going up on deck of the Pequod and saying, you know, I would strike the sun if it insulted me. Come on my doom journey. I'm Here's my wounded masculine aggression and I'm going to completely take over the lives of this crew. And we're going to we're going to because it's purely a mission that's about ego and about sort of small dick anxiety or being unmanned in some way. It, it's a seductive story that's right at the center of American experience, and everybody who pays attention to it is coming on that journey with me. Well, that was the story of the 2016 election. Likewise, I revisited The Grapes of Wrath, which I think of as sort of the great social novel of American letters of the, of the 20th century. And the end of that book, Bad Stories, was me re-experiencing. Actually, I did a, a segment on the 74th anniversary of Grapes of Wrath, and I 
you know, read the book again and had a completely different experience of it based on where the United States was yeah. at the time. And wow. that and that scene, um, you know, the heartbreaking kind of final scene oh my God. where, you know, where, where here is Rosa Sharon doing this thing of utter kindness and generosity of, you know, trying to kind of keep this dying man alive by, by literally breastfeeding him. Yeah. And I got a letter from some, uh, some, you know, some angry listener to that segment saying, Oh my God, you know, why did you have to read that filthy thing? Why do you have to put that on the radio? And, you know, how could you do such a thing? And I thought, wow, this, this is America right in this moment. You, mm. you, you're, I was like literally on the point of tears to say, you're, you're, you, you read the same story as me. Right. And read it wrong. You don't get it. He's oh, trying no. to say, you know, she's trying to save his life. That's what's happening. It's the milk of human kindness. Don't you get it? And I... yeah, so it was a sort of moment where I was like the grapes of wrath suddenly got back on my radar as it sounds like, you know, in, in a, in a way that was completely different from when I read it as a young budding, you know, wannabe communist or whatever I was sort of connecting much more forcefully to the, the sort of class issues in the book and the mm. sense of outrage and inequity and the corruption of the police and, you know, the labor movement being stomped under the boot heel of late model capitalism, whatever my, my dogma about it. At this point, I was looking at it much more through the lens of like, what has happened to us? How have we become so cruel and sadistic and lost? Right. I mean, honestly, and, and you're, you know, in, in the book, um, that you've, you've written about stoner is, um, it's, it, it, it is awesome how you manage to, um, and I think, you know, we can circle back. I don't, I don't really mind circling back here, there and everywhere around the, the, the book. Cause I think, um, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of like a circular conversation anyway, you know, um, like I think the way you do like take on, not take on, but you just, you just like gently read out the truth about the parallels between what's going on in the States now and what was going on in the States when, Williams wrote this book um and it's it's awesome it's you know when you go on when you start talking about Trump it's fantastic you know and yeah. hell I don't I don't live in the states and I've tried to bury my head as much as I can from what's going on over over there particularly at this at this current moment in time mm -hmm. um but I mean I'm, I'm having like you know troubles um with people at the moment you know that um that because we, we have Brexit over here Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have this sort of we're, we're starting to see signs now that people are starting to pick sides in terms of like the the press getting on the back of the current government and how they fucked this thing up how they fucked up they three months ago they've had you know they've had warning signs and they still haven't got their heads together they and they our doctors our nurses you know they're dying people are dying in their thousands and and then you've got people that are like just get off the government's back okay now's not <laughs> now's not the time to give them a shit they just mm -hmm. you just need to let them get on with what they're doing don't criticize them you know i i and then you've got in the states you've got this thing where people are protesting about their freedom i mean gee, fucking christ you know what is mm -hmm. that you know like free you know you got so this woman going to church in the states this journalist pulls her over in the, in the car why she winds down the window and goes i'm going to church i'm covered in jesus's blood i don't right. fear i don't fear anything what is that where where what would stoner what sort of stoner maybe what would stoner what would actually that's in because i've got a question like a, a the um 
a question for you. What would um, David Dave Masters say? But, <laughs> um, but it's a it's a late, it's a later question. Yeah. But what do you think Stoner would do today in like a a, a country that's being ravaged by well, by I think, yeah, for this I mean, honestly, he he does. Part of the reason that I talk about stoner as an anti-war novel or stoner as a novel about class a social novel is because like again a good novel is doing that work also it's taking stock of what's happening around you know in the world at large not the inner life but the you know or the sort of the outer life and so when i make a digression into what's happening sort of in our country morally and politically it's sort of of necessity to try to connect the dots and say, look, novels are also trying to speak to us about what's happening around us. So when Stoner talks about, um, even though it's not something that, that's heavily emphasized in the book, um, when, when he apprehends how people are losing their jobs, a great depression that's going on, talk about something that's relevant, right? And oh he God, sees, that, you know, you see, it's not a long passage, William, right? It's only a paragraph, but William says, look, this guy has lived through our history. The whole nexus of the book in some ways is that he doesn't go off and have the soldier's experience, the fucking Hemingway experience of, well, oh, this is about war and, and, you know, trauma and recovery. No, he does not choose to, to that. And he sees the jingoism and he sees the hysteria and the cruelty of people who believe somehow that combat or war is morally cleansing, that it's heroic. It's just utterly tragic. Even if he needs some help from Archer Sloan to see that, Williams, the author, is making this powerful point that Stoner sees how lost we are. Do you think and that's in the subtext, though? Do you think like there's a lot of... Because what I like about Stoner is it's not slap-bang in your face. I mean, it does no. move, move at an alarming rate as a book. But um, it, when you talk about uh, anti, the anti-war movement and what have you, um, in and around the Great Depression, that, that's quite interesting because it isn't in your face it's it's subtle stoner's he, he's almost like um not he's not like the deaf dumb and blind kid or anything like that like but there's a, there's a sense that he has those senses but they're turned down and he's like walking through life with blinkers on at times but not deliberately and it, and it's almost not blinkers because that's that's kind of like a that's trivializing him to have to like yeah. you know I, but I, honestly i would say that that he is not somebody who would ever go to a political rally, right? Yeah. Okay? He's not somebody who's sitting there, um, you know, who's, who's going to take to the streets. He is intentionally kind of, um, he's intentionally sort of um, uh, said, I'm going to take refuge in the academy, um, right? Um, and and I'm, I'm not going to be somebody who is engaging with the world in that way, sort of morally. But man... It's not like he's blind to that. There are these moments where he is able to, where, where Stoner makes us aware. This is a kid who was raised in poverty, who, who thought that his life would be one of subsistence, uh, you know, agricultural subsistence. And when he looks around and sees the, the horror of men, those beggars, who's, you know, who, who might outwardly be projecting anger, but who inwardly are obviously so ashamed that they can't feed themselves, they can't feed their families. Like that's the, the tragedy that he sees. He's lived that. He understands that. And he also, um, you know, Stoner is also looking around and it's not something, again, he handles it in 
maybe a few lines, but he talks about the paranoia, the illness. He calls it a contagion that's spreading. And that's that's a reference to McCarthyism. Yeah. That's a reference to what the, the shame that our country went through, where what Hofstetter calls the cultural historian Hofstetter calls the paranoid style in American politics dominates. And we get demagogues like Joseph McCarthy who are vilifying demonizing as a way of sort of promoting themselves and their agenda and that you know he's very he has a very light touch with that but it is unmistakable that he is is writing a novel that is trying to suggest that if you were born into a story of poverty and struggle you will you will not allow yourself to have a happy life and that is actually a direct contradiction of all the bullshit rags to riches fairy tales that Hollywood's been shoving down our throat, that capitalism is relentlessly promoting. You know, people who are born in, in with this sense of deprivation uh, in, emotionally, but even materially and physically, and those are, are so linked, never escape that. That's mm. just some fantasy we have. Um, and yeah, so I, I feel like the the Williams is very careful to, to foreground the character and his experience and his conflicts and his loves and his disappointments. But persistently, he is trying to say Stoner is a person who lives in the world, much as he might try to hide from it. He can't hide from something like the Great Depression. He can't hide from something like McCarthyism or the world wars that senselessly take people's lives. He has to admit that those things exist and that they are unmitigated tragedies. And you know, as much as I want to say, like, hey, I get it, put your head down and hide from it. I also want to say, like, a book like Stoner says, no matter how hard you try to hide from what's happening in the United States or Britain or all across the world, you can't and you shouldn't. Yeah. It's your job to be morally aware of what's happening. Jesus, man. Like, I, I've always wanted to talk to it. It's so funny. We, um, you, you're actually my first, you're my first American, dear boy, that I've spoken to on this podcast. Now, oh, wow. I, I could I could be wrong there. Um, I've done a f- few conversations and I tend to forget everything. But um, I've always wanted to know what your um, perception is of Brexit. Um, don't worry, this is just a, this is a, this is a John Williams style paragraph uh, away from the actual conversation. Um, <laughs> sure. But it's, it's relevant to me. Um, and I think quite a few of my listeners have been with me a long time that the perception of ours, of, sorry, some Brexiteers, um, version of Trumpism or whatever the fuck that is, they have this strange, almost like holier than thou approach to Donald Trump. They say he's a, he's a, he's a demagogue, he's a piece of shit, can't stand him, but then they'll, they'll go Brexit's glorious and wonderful. Huh. Do you, do you, do you have that over here? Like, you know, they'll say Brexit. Oh my God, what are those, what are those crazy guys doing? And then, then they'll go like, you know, Trump's amazing. Like there's, there's really weird contradictions. I, I've never yeah. been able to get it. You know, people that post like stuff on Facebook, that's like highlighting, um, the, the absolute horrors that are unfolding right now in the States. But, that, but yeah, like I said earlier, I guess, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling now. We're having, we're actually having, um, my whole neighborhood's now clapping the NHS. It's eight o'clock. Um, so that the whole neighborhood comes out and i'm in i'm in london so there's a, a lot of people clapping it's pretty amazing that's good that's fantastic i mean yeah. let, let's just say one thing that's sort of positive about what's happening in the world outside there's a lot of things that are just awful and what it's revealed kind of essentially that america is a failed state but like people honking and cheering 
for uh, you know workers who otherwise would be invisible and actually thinking about all the steps and all the people who who you know have to um, it, in this moment either do very hard work or in this moment actually also risk their lives doing that work to get you your goddamn baby arugula salad like I think that's a fantastic thing that some of the uh, sort of our ideas of what essential work is and the sort of privilege that we move through if we're just by virtue of being born in the United States or the UK, yeah. it's okay. It's good that some of that is being unmasked and that people are saying, saying to themselves as they should every fucking day of the year, thank God for teachers doing what they do. Thank God for home health care workers doing what they do. Thank God for doctors and nurses and other medical staff who do what they do. Like, that feels to me like an unmitigated positive that the invisible ropes that keep us from keep things from falling apart. And for that matter, thank God for government. And I think part of what happens in in, in the Brexit movement and, and to some extent in the United States is that there is um, a set of demagogues and admin who have for a long time sort of tried to make people try to poke at people's primal negative emotions as a way of having them exalt their grievances above their vulnerabilities. And this has allowed them to portray government as some clunky set of bureaucrats who are going to set up death panels or who are trying to allow immigrants into your country to take your jobs and all these other myths, essentially, that are an effort to stoke people's sense of grievance and fear and paranoia and to get them to turn away from the part of themselves that feel, um, you know, th that maybe in the United States and, and certainly in, in the UK, a lot of it was about, hey, remember when Great Britain, when the UK was great, remember when we were the, the unrivaled colonial power, remember when the world was our vassal, remember yeah. when, when we strode through the world in our fucking pith helmets, not having to apologize <laughs> to anybody or have to face a dark skinned face without knowing that they, that we, we, we were their sovereign. Yeah. And yeah, you know, yeah. that stuff sounds futile, but we're kind of litigating the enlightenment as far as I can tell. And if you're living in a post enlightenment world, it's very complicated and nuanced and you can't just move through the privilege of, you know, having been born lucky with a particular class or skin color or a set of, you know, sort of resources and when you're living in the pre-enlightenment world, it's very simple. It's a war of all against all, and anything anybody else gets is being taken from you. There's no sense of collaboration. There's no sense of the European Union working together and yeah. creating more opportunity, more trade, more income. More. That is a mindset that is fragile, and talented demagogues, uh, along with, I think, just the center, sort of general operating principles of capitalism after many years can actually convince citizens to vote against their own interests and to see a complex and obviously beneficial <laughs> arrangement like the European Union as somehow the enemy. They can't win mm. by much and they can't do it without shoveling propaganda down people's throats, but they can do it. And that's the, that's the common thread between the 2016 election here and what was going on in Bra with Brexit, you, you can look back to um, Margaret Thatcher, you know, uh, you know, or as we like to think of her, you know, Britain's Reagan as yeah, somebody, oh, yeah. who, you know, but, you know, I love that song by Frank Turner, Thatcher, Thatcher, fuck the kids. I mean, he's just saying, look, 
that here is a, a person who is never going to be held responsible in the same way Reagan's never going to be held responsible for for turning us against government for for you know making heroes out of out of the late model capitalists who are just people whose heads have been shot off by money and who, who kind of function as without any guidance of of a functioning conscience who are purely transactional beings and you know so you end up with in the United States something like a, a Reagan and in you know Britain somebody like uh, Boris Johnson who is kind of a self-deprecating version of a, a kind of stuttering calculated messed up hair version of Trump yeah. he at least has the good graces and the British wit to recognize that he's a, a toff or a fop but his underneath it his policies and his rhetoric are just as disingenuous and virulent um, so you know and, and honestly I'm not saying this at uh, the, the people in Britain or at Americans. I'm a part of it to the extent that this country is fucked up. That is on me. I am not apart from it. I am in no position to sit there and hold forth as if I have the answers. It happened on my watch. And therefore, it is my responsibility to try to, to whatever extent it's possible, try to, you know, undo it. Right. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're taking that that view i think more if more people did i think we wouldn't we will we clearly wouldn't be where we are you know um but my um my overriding fear is that this is just nothing compared to what's coming thanks law um in terms of like the recession that we're we're going to face after this cataclysmic drop into the ocean but um can i can i again uh to circle back around um talking about the the beginnings of the book because when I, if we, like the first, the first chapter, not the first chapter, like the first few paragraphs of this book are extraordinary, aren't they? They're like in terms of sort of saying, talk about put it, an author putting everything out there in one go. He's literally just telling you the entirety of this man's life almost within yep. the first few paragraphs and then starting at the beginning and then going, well, hang on, we already know what. What happens though? I mean, what is there? Do we need to hear any more? Is like, and then it's just like this unending set of events, one after they keep driving you on. But in the in the beginning, it is about love, isn't it? It's about this born into like yeah, you know, um, poverty, and then and then he does find love. Would you would you say your first reading? I mean, this yeah. is going back to nineteen ninety five. But did you did you feel that there was a love affair with with him? going to university for the first time learning like you know when he first hears um shakespeare's sonnet for example in the classroom do you think that is like his in that is a, a love affair there or do you think it's something else oh it's clearly love um but just to, to return to the the very beginning of the book as as a you know as a writer of short stories mostly but also you know failed novels of various sorts and 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 you know non-fiction People don't recognize how revolutionary and audacious the opening is because the opening is basically saying, here's this guy, William Stoner. He was forgotten by everybody. He did nothing of any consequence. You would have never heard of him. He's a nobody. That's the first three, you know, the first couple of paragraphs. He didn't fight in a big war. Nobody remembers him. Nobody would associate themselves with his name. There's some little 
medieval manuscript buried in some obscure library that you'll never find that is the only record of this guy's life can i just say like how that's how much i fucking love this book straight away i was like oh my god this book is for me i was like this this book is going to celebrate a a nobody well that's that's how i feel so anyway please carry on yeah well no that that i think that's how everybody feels underneath that that from the very beginning what it is trying to say is look if you have come to the if you've come to this book expecting the sort of the traditional dangling of heroism, martial heroism or grand romance or some exalted ambitious rise, you've come to the wrong place. (laughs) Get the fuck off the bus. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, not just that, but it's also such a ballsy thing to do to say, I am not going to hang the plot of this book on the outer life. I'm not going to use the math of the obituary. I'm going to tell you about somebody who is like you and like all of us, from a cosmic perspective, obscure. Mm. The big story of everybody's life is you're alive for a very brief span, and then you die. And none of your striving deeds are going to bring you alive again or render you immortal. Or if they do, you're not going to be around to enjoy it. And in, in a sense, you know, we have, especially now, have kind of confused literature with, with history you know, what what I wanted from from becoming a writer was to be known by the world. I wanted to get famous, wanted everybody to know who I was. And that's not the point of literature. Literature exists to help people know themselves. And everybody who I know who becomes a writer or who is a deep reader or a teacher, eventually, if they stick with it, they realize the only way they're able to stick with it is to say, well, maybe I'm not going to become famous, but I am coming to know myself more deeply and that is the ultimate kind of happy ending for stoner is that he knows himself Mm. he knows who he was he feels the power of who he was and not everybody can say that we are swimming we are lost i mean god the internet is just the Mm. receptacle for the lost and you know and people who are terribly lonely and so at any rate that that's the reason that opening is so audacious and so revolutionary it's utterly against Certainly the dogma of the creative writing world, which is show, don't tell, you know, keep them in scene, leap into and media Ross in the middle of the action. And it's so rare and beautiful to have a narrator say, hold on. I think you've been focusing on the wrong part of the human arrangement. I'm going to tell, I'm going to bring you to every moment of intensity that is happening inside a character. And then he proceeds to do that. And even though this is a book about a boring academic who has a lousy marriage and a dumb, petty academic feud and one affair that's all, and it's far too short. In fact, when you read the book, it's like the greatest thriller mystery you've ever read because <laughs> you're vaulted from one moment of, of, of tumult to the next, you know, the first two pages, there is the the county agent who comes by and says to Stoner's father, hey, have you ever thought about your son going off to college? And this guy who has never thought about anything other than this dry soil under his feet and how to make it yield enough to keep his family from starving, gets to thinking and he realizes, hold on a second, this isn't working. I am going to have to send this this son of mine off to college. And Stoner is flabbergasted. It's never even occurred to him that college is a possibility. You remember, he walks to college, and he's got the red dirt on his on his pants. It's like a, it's like a parable, right? It's a it's a parable, but it's also that William Stoner himself moves through such tumult. And the book, if you really take it apart, as I obviously have, like, <laughs> no shit. It, is yeah. like every there's a reason why it's so riveting, because at every moment, everything is on the line. Mm. 
Mm. And when he walks around and sort of sees the university, it's almost glowing. Or that moment you describe where his teacher, Archer Sloan, kind of reads him the 73rd sonnet. And he doesn't even know what the words mean exactly. He can't figure it out. But suddenly he he is his there's this sort of intensity he he looks at his fingers and he can feel the blood moving through his veins and he mm. can see the light coming through the window and shining on the down the sort of downy cheeks of his classmates and it's like suddenly his soul wakes up and that keeps happening all throughout the book when he falls in love with Edith there's like this even though it's deluded and he's blind and he's making just the wrong decision he's so alive in it and that's the thing about um Stoner, you know, I mean, the novel and the character is uh, uh, the lesson is every single human being, by virtue of being born into the species, is living a life of incredible tumult and drama. And if just slow down and pay attention to it, I and I honestly believe this as a teacher, there's not a single person on earth who isn't equipped to tell a brilliant story and to write a brilliant novel. It's the story of their life. And maybe they're not going to take the time to do that. And it's certainly very time consuming. It's a certain kind of privilege. And it's also psychologically and emotionally very dangerous to look at your life that carefully. But putting all that aside, (laughs) everybody could do that. There isn't a person who's led a quote unquote dull life. Yeah. And I I think it'd be quite cool the way the conversation is going here is I'm sort of picking out parts and then referring and you're doing a really good job of like referring to your own personal experience and because you have written this book about a book it's um it's quite cool um to to pause and 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 then reflect on you and 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 why you've written this book in the first place but also what drew me in so much the book that you've written um is is just how fucking honest you are like about i mean i know you come from I mean, I know your background from Cheryl and you and Cheryl did, you know, Dear, Dear Sugar. And I I was a, <laughs> a massive fan of that for a couple of years. I used to listen to it nonstop. Um, okay. And then my wife got into it. My sister-in-law got into it. There's like a little group <laughs> of us. Um, and <clears throat> sorry, my, my beer that I'm drinking is like getting cloyy. It's really annoying me. <laughs> um you didn't need to know that you know but there you go um (laughs) it's honesty it's honesty man we're on the honesty trip right now and and i think that how when we when we talk about this novel and how it helps people to know themselves or those that read it and those that really commit to it like how how have you come to be such an honest person like because in this book you are rip-roaringly fucking honest like in terms of your relationship with your wife your kids and your mum it's it's unbelievable and your brothers obviously well um you know gradually uh is is the honest answer so in other words um part of what uh drew me to journalism and and certainly what drew me to mostly to sort of going back and getting an mfa and starting to be a fiction writer was going in search of myself and then also recognizing that because of maybe the position I held in my family uh, and and because of um, uh, sort of my sense that whenever I've tried to hide the truth of what I'm feeling for myself, it usually has disastrous results. I have kind of become comfortable with the idea that hi- hiding the truth 
ultimately is more destructive and embarrassing than confessing to it. And that doesn't mean that I am telling the truth about everything all the time, but mm. certainly for the most part, what I tell my, you know, students over and over again in, in writing classes is, you know, good writing is just telling the truth in simple and direct language about the things that matter to you most deeply. Sometimes that's in fictional disguise. That's fine. That's great. You don't always have to be conscious of what you're up to. Your unconscious is a better driver than your conscious mind. It's certainly yeah, more relaxed. Yeah. But ultimately, if it's any good, it's because people are at some very fundamental level being honest and truthful. And what we call beautiful writing is really just the residue of the pursuit of truth. It, it, we get the equation wrong. We think, I think, as a young writer, I thought, well, if I throw enough sophisticated, beautiful language at the page, then it will register as true to people, which is fucking nonsense. It's just narcissistic gobbledygook. It's, you know, masturbation. In fact, what happens is that you try to tell the truth about complicated stuff and stay in difficult rooms. And this is why I love Stoner so much, because every time things get difficult, fucking Williams doesn't budge. He stays in the room. And yeah, he stays in yeah. the room, not just during the confrontation, but the aftermath of it and how much the, the aftershocks of, of traumatic, upsetting moments. I mean, that moment, I'm thinking not just about when, when Edith uh, takes, uh, takes his daughter Grace away from him, essentially, and, and the horrible aftermath of that and his realization of what that means and what his life is going to be like now and how impossible the situation is. But even the moment of like apprehending his wife and, and seeing that his desire for her is gone. And the marriage is dead, but he's too much uh, uh, of a coward in some ways um, and, and also in other ways too much a, a person of character to leave. And it's just devastating. And you're like, holy shit. But of course, everybody, at least from my vantage point, that is what makes art. The, 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 it's the last fucking refuge of that kind of rock bottom honesty and, and that kind of confrontation. And that's who wins if you need to put it in those terms, when, when we're in a workshop, the person who wins is the person who told the truth. Dude, I can, I can agree with you anymore. It's like life. And you know what? Life is too fucking short. Great songwriters, great fucking songwriters recognize the fact that life is too fucking short for bullshit. Like people right. haven't got the fucking time and the attention span for anything but the truth, you know, and whatever truth right. speaks to them, obviously, you know, but in, in, you know, in this book, yeah, it might not be great big fucking guns and, men jumping out of windows or what have you but it's it's right. um it's a very subtle truth you know yeah yeah and i think there's a um you know people recognize it intuitively that's my powerful sense of things is that there is this is why for instance a book like stoner even though it passed from view you know it's it's publishing history you know orwell said it right uh you know to time is the ultimate critic because it's not about how many books you sell in, you know, 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 years. It's like, who's going to be reading this shit, you know, forever, as long as yeah. people are around reading. And that's, you know, Stoner is the preeminent example of that, uh, just like Emily Dickinson's poems or, you know, whatever else, where, where you say, look, it doesn't matter in the moment. People will s smell the truth and they need it. They're desperate for it in a oh, world of bullshit. But that's yeah. why, I mean, you know, just circling back to your real life here and, and um, 
the non-fiction aspect. That's what you and Cheryl Stray did so fucking well in your podcast. You know, I mean, I recognized it immediately. I was absolutely addicted to it because I, I, I mean, to give you some of my own background, I was at boarding school and I was a, a really troubled guy and um, had some fucked up relationships and couldn't just talk to, to girlfriends about my problems. And... Hmm. Um, and then when I finally met my wife and some of her friends who suffer from like inner, I don't know what you'd call it, like anxiety, just, you know, and all the crazy fucking compulsive shit that we do in our minds and, you know, like the OCD patterns in our minds because people have this very vague, weird understanding. They think that, you know, OCD is involved is just washing your hands five times a day or, or five, right. you know, every time you touch a light bulb. I don't know, you know. Um, right. And actually it's just, cognitive patterns in your head that you keep repeating keep beating the shit out of yourself right. um but yeah you and cheryl just completely i'm what well, I, I felt like i was joining a club i, I wasn't alone anymore you know right. and when you read a, a great book it is that you feel oh man i'm not alone and that is essentially right. okay that's obviously a well-known fucking fact you know when you read a great book and you're not alone right you're never alone with a great book blah 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 mm -hmm. but but when it is a true a true connection with a book it's it's deeper man and like when when they say you know when stone is talking about how he falls in love with literature and he yeah you know when you reference him looking at his hands and life stands still and you're just like looking mm -hmm. at something for the first time even his own body you know that's mm -hmm. what's that's what really stands out for me in that little passage where um sloan reads to him about you know what not reads he, he recites um uh, Shakespeare mm -hmm. term and and it's like wow god I mean mm. that's happened to me that's and it, and maybe it's happened for me when I was at boarding school I'd walk uh, uh, I'd run away uh, for a, you know half a day cause a fucking fuss um, and I'd just be out walking the countryside but because I knew the like the moment that I was in like I was being a naughty renegade running away from school running away from class and I'd be, but I'd be in nature and I'd be listening to the birds in such a different way because of the intensity of the moment I was running away from, mm -hmm. you know, and that was really profound for me when I was growing up, um, homesick, desperate, lonely and being in nature and, you know, and, and then, then I found a refuge in books as well. And I, I dropped that and then picked up fucking like 12, 15 years later, I picked up the grapes of wrath and away we go. Right. But, but anybody that like you and Cheryl that express so openly and then equally give so much love to people that are asking you such, oh my God, intense honesty and you're giving so much time to them. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful gift. You know, it really is it's a wonderful thing that you do there. Yeah. Well, we, we, we love doing it. But the other thing that, that is important to think about is our inbox, you know, I don't know if you ever wrote us a letter, but but thousands of people did. Yeah, oh, and, gotcha, thousands. Yeah, <laughs> and those letters are unbelievable. I mean, any one of those letters, if that person, for for one thing, they're just unbelievably honest um, and, and sort of searing documents because people knew when they were writing to us, oh, these guys are going to listen. Mm. They're not they're not going to proselytize. They're not going to declaim. They're just going to fucking bear witness to there's somebody on the other end of the line who's going to listen without judgment. That's intimacy, right? That's right. what we're all kind of reaching for. 
And so for us, it was this feeling of like, oh my God, it was so remarkable. Cheryl, of course, had been living with this for a long time because she wrote the column so beautifully and sort of created that space. Mm -hmm. But for me, as somebody who kind of walked into it, we would look through these letters and we're like, oh my God, I wish we could answer all of these because these people have done such a um, kind of uh, brave and difficult thing to be so rock bottom honest about Mm -hmm. the parts of their lives and themselves that feel utterly broken. So we were, um, you know, to us, it was sort of like the least we can do is take this seriously. I wish we could do more. I wish we could deliver soup. You know, I wish, <laughs> right, yeah. uh, you, you know, give, give, give people a hug. Yeah. So there was a lot of, uh, of a feeling of like, okay, this is kind of for the, you know, for the community and people are desperate for it. That's why people are reading. That's why people turn to books like Stoner or the Grapes of Wrath or, or you know, the Bell Jar or Joan Didion or Toni Morrison or what, whoever it is who's their person. The reason that people feel that is because they just need to have a place where somebody is ready to engage them that deeply about mm-hmm. the real shit that everybody's carrying around and usually not very effectively hiding. Um, and, you know, so that's the reason that even if it's a small, you know, even if, if reading is an activity that's marginal and that's sort of out on the cult- edge of the culture, that's fine. That's fine. I'm okay with that. I mean, you know, the, the part of me that needed to be a big deal is much less interested in, in, you know, sort of driving the work. Now it's like, well, let me just see if I can um, reach a few people very deeply. Let the Dylans of the world and the Mozarts and, you know, whoever else that, uh, you know, reach lots of people very deeply. Good on them. For, for, but, but most people operate differently. You know, they reach a smaller number of people, but in a, in a deeper way, hopefully. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And like, I, I would have like I probably would have done quite a hefty preamble on um, why you are in in the circle of my life, why you came into my on on my radar, you know, um, and what have you. But it's it's cool, man. It's really great to touch base with you on 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 you and Cheryl because um, yeah, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, That's pretty much as simple as that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm 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 very glad, and I'm. I'd be interested to see the letter you wrote or would have written yeah, was, as, as a, you know, however old kid you yeah. were. Well, no, you uh, see, the thing is, it was actually about, it was my, it was about my sister. Um, and I was writing on her behalf because she was going through some really fucking heavy shit with, um, some stuff. And, uh, it was, um, but then I was like, God, I'm sending this. There must be like, they must get their inbox, in, inbox must be like, literally like, the head of computers must be like writing to Cheryl and Steve saying no more emails. Okay. You're going <laughs> to destroy the internet, you know? Um, but yeah, look, I, I just want to circle back to um, you again, um, <laughs> because like I said, you know, you do a, a grand job and a, a really cool job of, um, and it's, and it's not egotistical. Like it's, it's not you. I can totally it's not you like in the book writing, I'm going to write about myself because I'm fucking into myself. And this is how much stoner means to me in a really egotistical way. It's nothing like that. It's a beautiful, honest thing that backs up every element of your experience of, of the book and your interaction with it and why people should read it and why it's how essential it is. But you write about a professor that you interacted with when you were at um, uni. Yeah. Um, like that's, that's really 
fucking sad like and really messed up like that relationship yeah. that went on there it's like this book was written for you no <laughs> yeah it was crazy that 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 book only found me because this professor who we had such a toxic unhappy you know fraught relationship he was the the reason that i even found stoner yeah it's weird. Uh, yeah but you know it, the other thing is that I try to pay attention when people say to me, you know, what should I write about? Well, they don't say this a lot, but, you know, in some ways, oftentimes the question underneath whatever else is like, what should I be writing about? And I always say, look, you know, write about what you can't get rid of by other means, that you're going to do that anyway. So you might as well be. So for me, that the horribleness of, 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 of that feud and how much I felt dragged into this complicated, it was this strange um, thing where, where I think what we do is we, I, I'm continually realizing this in different ways, we just have no idea how powerfully we affect people. We are so busy in the story of how the world is affecting us that we continually underestimate how much we affect the world. And I think that's what was happening in both directions. I thought, I just want this guy's help, his mentorship. He's going to be my Archer Sloan. He's going to be my, my lodestar, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Um, I think I was also sort of, without realizing it, behaving in ways that registered to him in a, you know, in, in a difficult time in his life as aggressive, disrespectful, um, you know, he picked up in a way on my overweening ambition and in, in a way that I wasn't even aware of it. I thought I was being this good, dutiful person who just was going to be the best part participant in workshop and was going to work really. And he picked up on the ways in which I really did challenge him and call him out for doing things. And even though I might have had a point in doing it, the way I did it was provocative and the way that I conducted myself, and, and, you know, in, in ways now I look back at it and say, okay, I was acting out. I, I didn't know that I was doing it. I needed somebody to probably more compassionately say, hey, you don't always know how strong you come on. But like those people aren't always around. Even if you got a good therapist, they can only control you for the time that you spend with them. The rest of the work is yours, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, right? So, yeah, so, so that was going on from my end and from his end, Geez, he was, you know, his life was falling apart in certain ways. And he was having to teach a whole bunch of people who wanted his job. And I don't teach in an MFA program partly because I saw how much pressure those teachers were under and how difficult it is, let alone as a 50 year old person. But this guy was like in his mid 30s and he was already an established novelist and story writer and he was teaching a whole bunch of people who basically wanted his job yeah, and yeah. he was drinking too much and his marriage was falling apart and all this stuff that at 30, I had no idea the kind of pressure he was under and it wasn't even really my business to know that. But now I can look back on it and say, my God, I feel so terrible for both of us that we conspired in this awful, senseless, damaging, destructive feud and that that was the only way that we could say that we loved each other or that we respected each other or that we wanted to be seen by the other person. It's heartbreaking. And it's um, kind of, it, it, it echoes in some degree 
I don't want to put it down to percentages, but because I haven't got a decent enough vocabulary, I'm just going to say percentages here. But like, it's kind of like 70% what happens between Lomax and um, uh, and Stoner. Um, yeah. So Lomax is um, obviously, for those of you listening to this, is essentially in a twisted way, Stoner's nemesis, but mm-hmm. they, they don't need to be. Um and it's not freaky. at all. It's freaky not at all. And weird. They, they should be. I, I mean, this is what you know. This is what's so remarkable about Stoner. It doesn't have a lot of characters, and all of them play several different roles. So, for instance, Edith is the beloved, but she's also the antagonist, and later she's an ally. Right? Lomax starts as somebody who Stoner knows. This is a guy who's physically disfigured who's lived with the shame of that, who's found in literature an escape, a way to be somebody in the world and be seen as powerful and able and attractive. And Stoner recognizes that story because he's somebody who also needed literature to be, to, to come fully alive. And so they should be friends. Well, they and, are, aren't they? In the first like few, I don't yeah. know, pages or whatever like they, they, they think they're going to be the best buddy they're like you know he he, he sees something in in lomax stoner sees something in lomax that he you know and they're oh wow they're going to be this is going to be great finally william's going to get a mate you know <laughs> right exactly <laughs> he's be best buds going to down the pub and get pissed you know yeah exactly and in fact it's just the opposite you know it, it, it williams does this over and over again where he sets you up for a beautiful possibility <laughs> and then he just breaks your ass down you think this is going to be a great you know wedding night and it's the worst wedding night <laughs> in the history of wedding nights or one of the shit's, worst shit's all over it yeah right right yeah. or on the other hand at the moment that stoner is literally suicidal <laughs> for the first time the thought has entered his mind i don't want to keep living who walks into his office you know, Catherine Parker, the the, the, uh, the possibility of love walks yeah. into his office. So I think he's very good at, in, in both ways at recognizing what the reader's expectation is and having the plot turn suddenly in, in, in a, you know, the opposite direction. Yeah. But that's with Lomax. There's something about people. And this is why I think that re- this resonates for me. We hide from one another how wounded we are and therefore how dangerous we are. And so there are all these hidden minefields. They exist in our close relationships, but also in our professional relationships. And we have no idea when we are stepping into a tripwire. Stoner has no idea how he steps into Lomax's tripwire, but he somehow does. And that's why I love it. That's why I love that, that, you know, because we get that sense, don't we? We, that that's a constant threat in this book yeah. not threat but you know that that drumbeat right it's like it's constantly yeah. there you know and that's what drives the book you know the, the, you know that it's, it's going to be a fast-paced book is you if you're a, a third of the way through it you going right i'm kind of getting this pace is like it's, it's ticking along man it's ticking along mm-hmm. um and there's always just that threat you know it's like the shark you know and it's and it's just how he just slowly like you said like turns the screw and um, it's it's pretty hard, you know. I'd say like he comes to suicide if if that's too broad. I don't know, like twice maybe. I think like mm-hmm. after um, his love affair, um, yeah. You know, and it's it's. I just I'm reading it. I'm audio booking it at the moment um, for like the. I think I've audio booked it three times and read it um, twice. Mm. 
and uh whilst at work so i'm like gardening and that's my job by the way and um and <laughs> i'm like just it's very meditative especially at the moment with the sun out it's absolutely astonishing weather and but it's um it's it just keeps changing to me but one one thing i did want to ask you um because I, I think it's quite interesting early on in the book with um dave masters and um finch uh gordon finch there mm. and uh and, and william they're all just getting i don't know not not pissed as such but they're all like kind of doing the normal thing they're having this like thing called a fun conversation which right. doesn't seem to happen an awful lot and no. that and and dave masters is like this oracle right and kind of like some books some films they need an oracle right um but i do have a question and it would be if if you could be a young Dave Masters, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give to um, William Stoner, like at the at the absolute lowest point of his life, like in but not like say when he's maybe when he's coming to the decision to leave the university for for Catherine, and he's like yeah. you know oh, I don't know if I should do it and it would cause this much damage and oh my God. And mm. What would Dave say to to um, William at that point, do you think? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the problem with Dave Masters, and it's not a problem exactly, he is a truth teller. He is the kind of the seer of, of, of the book, but he's a cynic. And um, if you see what I mean, like oh, he's, yeah. he, he speaks the truth uh, but but with with without much mercy. Right. So he's he's able to sort of say, you know, this is who you are, Stoner. You just get knocked on the ground. You don't do a thing about it. You think the university is some temple of purity and it's just as corrupt as what's around it. Like, get off of it. And so Masters is not the kind of person who is going to give Stoner the sort of advice he needs, nor would Stoner even take it. I mean, if I was talking to Stoner, I would say, your daughter fucking needs to see that you love her and you have to protect her from the destructiveness of your of her mother and you have to try to do that otherwise your daughter is going to isn't going to understand that you love her and that there's something worth living for and she's going to descend into you know a alcohol slow suicide by alcohol well steve maybe the question needs to be what in what who if fan fiction what you know how would you write the savior the savior that comes in and rescues yeah <laughs> rescues here's, william here's the here's the truth about the way stoner's written i have i have my objections to the fact that he doesn't get out of the marriage that he doesn't say grace that he doesn't you know leave the university and you know try to the, the the way stoner is written you understand and this is what i love about this book people people don't want to be happy they tell themselves they want to be happy and maybe if they do enough therapy and enough yoga and breathing, they, they you know, can believe it for, for you know, convincing stretches of time. But that's not really true. We know that. What people want is to feel alive in the ways that are the most familiar to them. And oftentimes that is through sorrow, through disappointment, through taking, you know, through self-punishment. Uh, through the feeling of being a sort of a, a martyr or through combat or aggression or um, you know, sort of a relentless galvanizing grievance, whatever is in the groundwater growing up, 
unless you do lots of therapy and work, you are going to end up repeating over and over again in different phases of your life. You can manage those things, but you cannot make them disappear. And Stoner is not somebody who's ever going to do that work. He is doing heroic work just to come to know himself. Right, and, yeah, it, yeah. It, you know, so if I came to him and said, William, baby, look, love yourself, <laughs> love yourself enough to leave. Dear Sugar says you can leave this you know, destructive <laughs> marriage and take your daughter with you. You'll have a happy life. He would just look at me and say, get out of my get off my porch yeah. or I, I hear what you're saying, but you are speaking another language but, to me. And the that's the thing about it. You can't really. You know, you, you can't apply the dear sugar radical empathy to William Stoner because he knows who he is and he's somebody who's going to, you know, stay loyal to a certain kind of unhappiness. I might have my theories about why that is, but I believe the character deeply enough to know he is not going to do the things that are in his best interest much of the time. So that does that relay like relate rather to other aspects in 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 reality like would you say that some people are just better off just just don't give them just don't you can't they can't be helped or they don't need they they just need to go down this avenue they need to ride that train you know i can't interfere sort of thing um yeah probably i mean what i would say is that at a certain point you have to rest you have to recognize when um your efforts to rescue somebody else are mixed up in your ideas about your own power, about your ideas uh, in, in, uh, about trying to fix things that you didn't break and you can't fix. That's what I would say is that, and I, I say this is somebody who falls into this pattern all the time, that I'm continually sort of saying, I'll fix it and, and I'll, I'll find the solution. And my wife and, and even my kids will have to say to me, like, like, just fucking listen to me. Don't try to fix it. Yeah. Just be there and listen to me. And this is an experience I've, you know, it's quite familiar to me through Dear Sugar and even in my own life. There are some people where you, you know, you have to like um, James Baldwin's, you know, Sonny's Blues. You know, the, the, the lesson of that short story, the reason we're still reading it is you can't save certain people. You, you, you know, that's just some fantasy you have to get rid of your own guilt your survivor's guilt or to, you know, pretend that the world is a broken place that you can fix, but you can't. Uh, and sometimes you have to just be able to accept that and say, well, the most I can do is kind of bear witness to it. Um, and maybe, you know, uh, try, try to be sympathetic without getting dragged down the same, uh, you know, sort of drag down the same hole that this person is one way or another, that, that for whatever complicated set of reasons, the centrifugal force has got them. Mm-hmm. And you, I'm sure you've seen this in your own life with various people. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a way, my, my mom, before she died, was so terrified, so anguished, and so down on herself. And what was painful about it is I could not, I didn't, I don't think I did as much as I should have, but I could not drag her out of it. Yeah. You know, she, she was going to be down on herself in a way that it was heartbreaking to me. And, and, and I couldn't do anything about it. All I could do was try to visit and, you know, I don't know what, you know, be supportive and loving. And But we couldn't even really talk about it. Um, and with a lot of people, they, you know, you, you, you can't, they're not going to give you the power to rescue them. That's a, that's a very good point right there. The power giving, 
the power giving the power to to other to another person to rescue them that's 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 pretty profound i'd say man that's that's a very profound thing to say i like that well sometimes there are people who will sort of say you know we've been in relationships that are, that are the opposite of that where they're basically saying you know help me help me help me and you get into that um, cycle where you're sort of enabling and you realize at a certain point, I'm not helping them. No, I'm just, you know, a companion as we're circling the drain. But there are other kinds of relationships and this, unfortunately, maybe my relationship with my mom always, but especially maybe at the end of her life was one where she simply was saying to me in any number of ways, I am not going to uh, allow you to tell me that I was a great mom and that I should love myself and feel good about my life. What I am struggling with, my inner life, is more deep and profound than that. And, and honestly, the, what I associate to is the realization in my own life that the inner life of my children is beyond my reach in, 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 in a lot of moments. And now as they're getting older and the two older ones are becoming more teenage type people, it's like look, it's important that they know that I love them and that I can see them, but they're going to have to find their own way. And a lot of that, I cannot, you know, they're going to have to contend with their own inner life. And that's based on a whole bunch of things. And I have very little control over that. I think we want to believe that we can, especially parents want to believe if we're good and loving and do the right things, there's a whole fucking parent industrial complex that's Mm -hmm. arisen to try to sell us on the idea that if we do it just right, our kids will be just fine. And nobody can say that. That's just not how it works. Somebody else's inner life belongs to them. Mm. Wow. You do sound like you've done an awful lot of work. Like I, I, I think that's what I find, um, that why you're in such a position to, to write this book about stoner so effectively. And and I really trust it, you know, because I th- I think when you've when you've fallen in love with a book so hard and 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 it's been there and and it's only been there in in my life for six years, um, but still six years is a long time. Fucking hell, man! Like let's face it, six months in in turmoil is is an eternity. But like, <laughs> I, I just think yeah, you know, it's it was a. I think for those for those for those of you who've read read the book and and, and listened to this podcast, you, you'll recognise everything that we're talking about um be it like on exactly on 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 the book or on steve in steve's life but there's a really cool there is quite a cool bunch of sentences like paragraphs whatever i've i've highlighted Mm -hmm. um that really stuck out to me and I've put the end of this one that's a stunning sentence one that i could have done with 20 years ago but i'll read it to you okay and, and see what you think um, the true work of love resides in sticking with the process, especially in those moments and eras when desire is forced to coexist with doubt. Yeah, that's pretty fucking. That's I. I there are loads. You know, I read this on Kindle. You can highlight stuff. I highlighted that. That really spoke to me. That was that's fantastic. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, anybody who's been in a a, a long relationship of any sort of friendship, a sibling relationship, but but especially like a, a romantic relationship because you're asking the other person to, to, to provide so much for you and, and vice versa, knows like the romantic version of that is that you're getting along and every you manage it and every every little foible is cute and you kind of like sand one another's edges and they ultimately somebody says, You complete me and the other person says, You complete me too and <laughs> bullshit. 
it's it is a continual um, you know if we're if we're honest it is a continual kind of re-encounter <laughs> at, at, with with um, yes I desire this person yes I want to be with them and oh my god I can't stand them and it's such hard work and they don't get me and what do I do and we feel like it's sort of a betrayal of the other person uh, to say that but the truth is as I see you checking over your shoulder like where's my partner the, the truth <laughs> is that, that everybody feels like that and that if we were a little bit more honest about it maybe it wouldn't be so dangerous to admit like there are moments where you're the last person I want to be with and not just because you this that or the other but because you know me so well and our worlds are so enmeshed that not only am I frustrated by you but I'm frustrated by the parts of you that reflect back my own fucked up inner life <laughs> yeah yeah no exactly and there are about well, I can see why you did a fucking podcast to show us straight because, frankly, you know, it's like you open that can of worms. But um, yeah. I, I did. What I really also loved about your book is how you take apart some of the shortcomings of of, of John Williams's um, portrayal of the female experience of this book. So, for example, yeah. you know, um, Edith. So Edith is. Um, William William Stoner's wife in this book does she she gets a pretty f fucking rough ride man like there's, there's no real kind of there's no joy for her and she is simply the she's I wouldn't say the the jaws of this book but it's she, she, there is there's no explanation as to why she's miserable there is a tiny there's a tiny bit of you know when um she she has that moment on her own and she, in in um in her bedroom or what have you and she destroys all the things um that her father gave her presents and stuff which right. seems to suggest that she was uh, you, did you say that she might have been like you know molested by her father or those like that thing that might have i, I yeah. can't quite remember but i i, I cuz that that's what i love about this book you're like going look it's a fucking brilliant book but also, there are some problems, right. you know, which yeah. is great because that's the honesty part of it, you know. And I, I, I've got to say, when I started reading your book, I was like, oh, my God, shit. I feel like such a moron. Like, I've been such a guy reading this book. I've, I've taken it so to heart that I, I haven't given one moment's thought to, yeah. to, to, to Edith, you know. <laughs> well, uh, to be perfectly clear... For the first decade and a half that I was reading the book, I was doing the same thing and just thinking, oh, my God. So it took, you know, my wife and yeah. other female readers basically saying, hey, pal, how about like stepping back from your insane dick privilege and recognizing <laughs> that, you know, most narratives are male centered. But what if you thought about it from the female's point of view? And in fact, even Williams's agent said that to him, like, hey, the mm. female character is kind of a, a puppet here. She's she's somebody who's very flat. And like, how about rounding her out and making us understand why she is such a destructive person in the book? Rather than, that, yeah. yeah. And so for me, it was a matter of saying, look, a book can be deeply moving and still be a product of its time. Nobody sits there and, and looks at Tom Sawyer or. Uh, Huck Finn and is like, wow, Twain was so enlightened, you know, and he's like, wait a second. No, he was a product of his time and age. It's full of 
the attitudes that prevailed then. And there's this term in the United States, I don't know if it's over there also, William, woke. Oh, oh but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it came from you, right? I, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I have to say that, that like using parent as a verb, I hate it. Because it implies somehow that you're either asleep or you're awake. And, you know, if you reach this state of wokeness, that's like some holy land of enlightenment. And the truth is, everybody's a fucking sexist, racist asshole, especially in traffic. Okay, everybody's a fascist in traffic. And this this fantasy that somehow we reach a state of total like non-judgment and purity is such a bunch of garbage and and actually ultimately very damaging to us so for me reading the book i was like i can appreciate all these parts and then actually like gently uh um given another view on things by by my wife especially but other women readers i can realize oh yeah also it has these problems and these problems probably have something to do with the time that he was writing but also characterologically who the author was yeah. it's full of his as I try to break down, like this is his fantasy. He was an awful, negligent parent in his life. He was the big deal. His books were the big deal. His achievement was the big deal. He was chronically unfaithful to his partners. He was much more in, he was sort of absent from his kids' lives. And still in all, he wrote this amazing, beautiful book, but it contains a certain fantasy uh, he makes, you know, Stoner into the opposite of who he really was, who is this, you know, thankless parent who instinctually is perfect dad, but the kid is taken from him by this cruel, destructive woman. It's like, dude, okay, but also not okay. Um, you know, <laughs> nothing is that simple. Edith's got her own version of this. She doesn't want to be married to you. That's why she perceives the wedding night as a kind of rape. Like, dude, yeah. get real with it. And throw, it throws um, up in the toilet, yeah. Right. And throws up. And and also and again, to me, like part of the excitement of writing about a book is that you get to um, sort of piggyback off of all the beautiful, important truth telling moments in the book and also to interrogate the parts that feel to you like they're not as truth telling or they are oversimplified or they are written with certain blind spots that the author isn't aware of. And that's that's OK, too. That's what good criticism should do. It should exalt what a great piece of literature does. And it should also interrogate the parts where the author, you know, um, hasn't really done her best to, to, to fully understand the character or where, um, you know, y you as a critic are able to sort of compassionately step in and say, I don't buy this uh, yeah. or it feels to me. Yeah. And in one note also, and it, it gives someone an opportunity reader to understand that nothing, there's no such thing as perfect you know and we're not all perfect beings you know and the person that wrote this book is not a perfect human being you know it's like and then that's kind of what i'm enjoying about your book and uh, stoner is that i'm having you know re-read re it really really recently you know so we could have this conversation afresh um but it's um it's quite enlightening to to feel that level of Oh, um, God, he was, he wasn't, he wasn't a God, you know, he wasn't, I mean, this, this book feels like God's talking to me, but it, it turns out that, you know, he's just a human being writing this book. And, right. and, and that's what I, that's what I, I really love about it. But then I think the really sad thing is how, um, oh my God, the most tragic thing for me is the, um, is the daughter, 
you know yeah i mean it's just yeah. oh my god it's so heartbreaking what happens and it's yeah. and then, then that sentence well not sentence but the how stoner sees his daughter drinking and turning into this mush um and he mm. sees at least that she's got drink as like this uh crutch it's like mm. what what say what now you know and right. it's so heartbreaking I mean that right. that for me on rereading is is one of the because now as you said y you've been reading it for a damn long time I've I've become a I've become a dad like about twenty months ago and <laughs> and it's like man like shit yeah. changes when you read this book you know it's like right. when I first read this I was single traumatized by a relationship I just got out of I was in Thailand volunteering at a dog sanctuary and it just caught me um and now and now i'm a fucking fast forward six years like no time no time and i'm 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 a dad and oh my god you know i'm thinking this beautiful little daughter i've forgotten her name now um <laughs> right um, not, not not my daughter the name oh, of the Grace. daughter yeah, Grace is, <laughs> Grace. <laughs> yeah although i was gonna say wow it was really heartwarming until you got yeah. your name although you know I, I often call her by one of my dog's names so you know um that um it's just it, it it is a book for all stages of your life isn't it but i mean how did that speak to you when you first became a, a daddy well i think it took a while i mean basically w now you have a 20 month old so that's like this incredibly precious you know year and a half that just amazing. walking and you know yeah. stepping falling all the time it's amazing yeah. all over the, they're just so <laughs> dest beautifully destructive they're just trying to figure out take the world apart you know yeah, yeah, one yeah. head contusion at a time so it, it's such a wonderful time as the kids get older and more um kind of um you know uh, more complicated and more themselves what i realized reading stoner was like my god his conception of parenting in this book is really um of, of raising a child is like you either do it perfectly instinctually and you love it and you've got your little daughter by your side in your office um or uh, the daughter's taken away from you and slowly descends into a life of, of you know despondent alcoholism and i'm like I think most people's experience is somewhere in between those extremes <laughs> yeah. and it's mishmash of, you know, love and support and nurturance and frustration and tedium and, and, and rage and, you know, like a relationship with, with you know, a, a love relationship or a friendship. It's this big mishmash and that stoner, I don't think captures as well that um, really with, with grace it misses the sort of day-to-day -day nuance of how most relationships work between parents and children. And I think a lot more and talk certainly a lot more when, um, when I was, uh, talking with Cheryl for, for the podcast, a lot about the work of the, the British, um, psychoanalyst Winnicott, um, who talked about this idea of the good enough mother. And what he did is he watched so many interactions between mothers primarily mothers and, and infants and children, small children, like around the age of your daughter. And what he observed was that most interactions are quote unquote failed interactions, that about half of them, are, there's some inattention or some distraction or frustration that intervenes and means that the child doesn't get exactly what he needed or she needed from the parent. And you know what? That's necessary. 
You cannot be the perfect parent. You are ill-equipping your children if you're always the perfect parent. It yeah. doesn't. It's not an excuse to be inattentive or negligent or abusive, but it is saying you're a human being and your kids need to adjust themselves to a world occupied by human beings who are imperfect and not every interaction is going to give them exactly what they need in the exact proportions they need it that's absurd and we all need to especially in this insane kind of my parenting is my identity culture especially for moms right need but but for dads too we need to sort of step back and say you know what how about if we're good enough rather than being perfect let's just be good enough for today which includes some screw-ups but also some moments where we connected successfully. And if we yeah. screwed up badly enough, then we need to apologize. You know, my, my daughter came down to my office, my 13 year old daughter and basically said, you really screwed up last night in a way that you're unaware of. And I am now going to tell you about that screw up. And I was like, shit. Oh my God. Thank God. She's telling me. And I have the chance to apologize and, and not try to, excuse it, but try to explain where my head was at and why I, I, I behaved in a way that was so painful to her. So, uh, you know, as long as that line of communication is open, I feel like you're doing the predominant image in, in Stoner. What I think about in terms of his parenting or his being a dad to this kid is our moments of disconnection where after grace is sort of taken away, there are these like heartbreaking moments at his at his deathbed, certainly, but even before that, where he walks past her and they each exchange a look that's kind of like, remember when we were connected and they can't speak to it. And it's just oh, devastating. Oh, God, it's so heartbreaking, man. Like all, all the imagery that he conjures up even before the collapse of his relationship with his daughter, like this beautiful moment where that where she's just stud studying but you know busying herself as a little tiny little girl and he's yeah. studying and it's just yeah. fucking adorable man it's like this you know you envisage this perfect little shirley temple type girl mm -hmm. you know and this studious father and it's this beautiful relationship it's 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 so it's so powerful but it did bring me um well i think i suppose because that is done so perfectly and then you know you write about it um parenthood and you, you talk about a, a party that you had um um and they brought it really brought me to tears when you you, you spoke with your friends therapist yeah. friends about their daughter and they were just i don't know if they were looking at your daughter or something and they were just said yeah. like you know it's just it just goes so fast and then yeah. oh my this this friend of yours perhaps you could explain it better because it is it, yeah really, it really affected me and i i'm doing i always do a pretty fucking awful job at explaining highly emotional moments so. yeah well no you you got the gist of it what's interesting is that they weren't even they were friends of my of my parents this is like my daughter's six months old so in a way i have no idea really what they're talking about but this couple is looking at my little daughter it's her naming party basically she's got this beautiful little blue velvet dress on she's crawling across the rug and this couple has a daughter who has gotten mixed up in drugs and is obviously in a, in a really terrible place you know she's in her whatever 20s probably late 20s maybe however old she's struggling and she's there she's there daughter and they are wrecked by it and it's a weird way of like it's like the future talking to you 
in a way like I had no idea what they were talking about. And I still don't have any idea because I don't have a kid who's in that kind of trouble. But I've had kids who have been even in a little bit of trouble and the, the how ruined I am by it uh, and, and how helpless and having to run up against the hard truth of like, it doesn't matter what I do. Their inner life belongs to them. I can try to help. It's good to try to help. They need to know that I'm trying to help, but that isn't the same as being able to fix it. Mm. And, um, you know, in a way it was just heartbreaking that I, I didn't even know these people. They were strangers to me. And it was just one of those moments where the future sends you a little dispatch and says, your kids are going to fuck you up. There's that poem, uh, you know, your mom and pup, they, they fuck you up. They do not mean to, but they do. Uh, and it's like this poem that's all about like how parents screw kids up. But the, tr- the opposite is also true. Your kids are going to emotionally break your heart over and over again without even meaning to most of the time. And that's the arrangement. There's no way around it. If you want to love somebody as deeply as most parents love their children, then they have power over you. Mm. Oh, yeah, I just I need to take a moment to think about that because it, yeah, it's it's so it's so fucking in, it's this whole book because it does move so dramatically quickly through a man's life. But yeah. Yet, but yet it's it's so well done. It it, it feels like um feels like the fucking Iliad or something. It's, it's for all like, I don't know, Atlas Shrugged or something. It feels like an enormous book. Um, but that, it just goes so fast when your friends, you know, sorry, your, your your parents' friend broke down and I could envisage the look um, that she was giving your daughter, um, you know, and I just, it, it's, it, it's like, because at the end of the book, when he's like, he he dimly recalls thinking about failure and how that, you know, it doesn't matter. And everything just seems to have stoner. This is sorry. Um, yeah. Dipping back into the book. And he, he just recalls all his anguish and all in his life, all the bitterness and the crap and how, oh my God, it just, it didn't matter. Like it didn't, none of that fucking mattered. You know, what it all boils down to is just these little words, you know, like or phrases, like it just goes so fast, you know, and mm-hmm. that's like the how the truth of this novel bears like bears down right into your soul, you know. At least that what it does for me. Well, I would say that 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 moment is sort of he's dying, and everything is sort of stripped away, uh, and what he's thinking about he he's hearing people talking about him, and he de- can't make out their words, but he knows that they're looking at and sort of judging him. He's become sort of an object because he's so medically debilitated. And he starts thinking about, and I think we all go through this. I think it's so powerful because we all go through this process all the time. He starts thinking about how his life must look from outside, what he must look like to other people. And he starts cataloging all his failures. You know, he, he, had, he hasn't had many friends. His marriage was a failure. He wasn't a good teacher much of the time. Uh, you know, he, he didn't really defend himself. He just goes through this laundry list of all of his uh, transgressions and failings and disappointments and inhibitions. And then he, you know, falls asleep and he's exhausting. When, when he wakes up, the natural world, he has a little bit of strength and the natural world kind of returns to him. And he has what's as close to a moment of grace 
as Stoner will kind of allow himself. And that's when he tries to remember what he was thinking about. And he realizes that it had something to do with failure. And he says, as if that mattered. And he, he realizes how mean and unworthy it was of what his life has been. And that is the, to me, the kind of happiest ending that a novel could ever have. Because that is the eternal struggle to esteem who we are and what we're doing. All the rest of it is just an external expression of that anxiety. Oh, let me be ambitious and let me find love in whatever port I can find it. And so that's all us trying to esteem who we are and what we're up to. And uh, Stoner is able to do that. He's able to say, and this is the place where the novel is the most powerful to me because it's been the most persistent struggle in my life. Uh, it, it has been for me to say, can I just either, either just not silence, but quiet that voice that is calling me a failure and looking at everything through the lens of, of my failure and just realize how meaningful and valuable my life is as I'm living it right now, relating to my 20 month old, to my partner, doing my work, reading my books, doing my podcast. Let me just try to esteem that what I'm up to and realize how much that other voice is mean and unworthy of my life. And I'm like, that is why I keep reading Stoner right there. Man, if, I, if you could see me, my head is nearly coming off my shoulders with nodding. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it, it's just, but what's really interesting about that is, you know, you interacting with the book and, and, and having that relationship with it and then knowing that there's other people like me out there and then thousands of other people that have interacted with it, certainly obviously in different ways, but fundamentally that are hearing a guy actually as well. And I know that sounds trite or perhaps, I don't know, simplistic, but hearing a guy talk about his feelings and, and introspections about this this book and how it's affected him is it's really it's fucking powerful it's a powerful thing when i when a, when a guy really does um open up about that you know i think yeah well it, it it is because um you know we're living in this kind of patriarchal cloud where um you know uh and i mean little kids you know fall on the playground you know and if it's a little boy like we can't stop ourselves and say you're okay get up you're okay you know <laughs> like don't cry leave put it inside that's how you function as a, as a, you know safely function as a boy or a man you can't feel too much it's unmanning yeah. and you know we now are living kind of in this nightmare ultimate expression of it i think at least in the united states living you know with like the world's most insecure man and seeing how disastrous um, the, the, those outcomes are, but it's also disastrous for all of us. Like we're all essentially abusing ourselves and men are as much victims. Well, I want to say as much, but men are also victims of patriarchal thought and behavior. And the part of us that winds up turning our pain into abuse, whether it's emotional or physical, whether it's abuse to ourselves or the people around us, uh, is, you know, that is all the result of people not being able to deal with, admit to, talk about their pain and their struggle and their doubt and their confusion. And you know, that's fucked. All these people with, like, think about how important guns are. It's like, good Lord, how did a killing tool become something that gives, gives people comfort? That's a culture that's lost. And it's lost in a particular kind of, um, in, in a particularly masculine way. 
And so it shouldn't be, you know, it's sort of like when people say, wow, you're such a good dad because I'm, you know, performing the basic functions of being an attendant parent. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm just doing what any parent of any gender should do, which is be present in their kids' lives. Not perfect, but, you know, trying their best or or the best that they can manage at that particular day. And, you know, so so that our, our whole curve is screwed up. I'm glad that that um, it's helpful, but it shouldn't be, it, something's wrong with the system where it's sort of heroic and unusual for a man to speak about his inner life. Oh man, that's been going on for, fuck, I mean, it's, I mean, come on, like the last, what, 20 years, 10 years, five years, men have really just been encouraged to start being human beings on different like in more than two dimensions you know it's like just only now that the bbc are bringing out podcasts talking about emotions you know it's like fucking hell i wish someone would be talking about you know talking like this fucking 30 years ago you know i i would have lapped it up i wouldn't i would have been a kid 10 years ago i i wouldn't have been like oh it's whoa whoa that's what girls talk about no, yeah, right. no way, Mister. I'd have been like, yes, please. I'll, I'll listen yeah. to more of that. You know, it's like. But um, I do have a, a question. Sure. We've been going like an hour and forty minutes here, so this is super cool. Um, I just said super cool, like I'm a frat boy. What I, what I meant to say was, this is jolly good. This is, this good. is, this is jolly good. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's this one sentence I've got. Um, Maybe you can interpret it. I don't know how you, but I can tell you how I interpreted it. But um, it's about three quarters of the way through the book, I think. But it's, no, 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 no. It's the major um, showdown between Stoner and Walker. And mm-hmm. Finch Finch just says to Stoner, we can't keep the Walkers out. Right. Um, how do you, like, in terms of where we are right now, what do you think that really, what, what do you think that says to to us now from back in when this was written yeah so in the particular it's saying hey academia is not a temple you know or if it's a temple it's full of pharisees like you cannot keep human hypocrisy and doubt and people who are out of of, you know the temple of your university Uh, people manipulators con men people who are going to somehow sort of use the injured part of themselves to uh, manipulate their way up, uh, you know, into power or into mm-hmm. prominence. But I think now is a moment where, in a way, it, it's it's more it's broader than that. What it's really saying is, people who are damaged are and destructive are oftentimes also very powerful. They don't have uh, the, the superego and the conscience that's functioning to keep them in check, and that makes them effective. And that politics and capitalism selects for that kind of person. Walker is almost comically um, arrogant, provocative, um, but also very canny and shrewd about it. And he's a, sorry, I should have prefaced this with like he's also a, a student that um, Lomax, this uh, professor, uh, arch enemy of Stoner, is is trying to get into the university on a on right. a course, right? Right, right, and he's not qualified. Yeah. And if you think about it, William, thinking of like what the media tried to do with Trump was basically what William Stoner does at his Ph.D. defense. 
it, William Stoner says, hold on, I want to ask you some basic questions about the romantic <laughs> tradition. And I, this is stuff that you should know. It's at a very rudimentary level. Yeah, and he yeah. basically has to to reveal to the committee that this guy is woefully unqualified to to be passed in his in his oral exams. And it's this terrible, humiliating moment like having a presidential candidate announce, you know, on secret tape when he thinks nobody's listening, he loves grabbing women's pussies. That right, should just right. be automatically in any sane, mature democracy. Like you are, you are disqualified. You can't brag about sexually assaulting one half of the country um, and still be taken seriously as a, a potential leader for that country. Right. So what I think about with the walkers and that line of Finch, you can't let the, you know, you can't keep the walkers out is really almost a prophecy that's saying you can't keep the darkest part of human nature, the manipulative, you know, power hungry, canny part out. You'd like to believe you can, but you can't keep it out of your universities and you cannot keep it out of your political life and you cannot keep it out, out of your governance. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of ultimately where that lands for me. And I think it's, powerful because like we're in a moment where what happens to walker he ends up back at the university what happened from he wound up in the white house it didn't matter that, that the stoners were around uh trying to you know sort of vet them and say this is beyond the breach you can't and in a certain way what's happened in the culture is that powerful psychometric um data analysts have figured out that when people turn away from their inner life, they are suddenly susceptible to being turned against each other. And that is the big con that's going on sort of writ large right now is that if we make our inner life, we put it on display on the Internet, powerful people will not just figure out what products to sell us, but how to mobilize us to behave in, in angry and destructive ways towards fellow human beings mm. and make decisions that are very much not in our interest in any on any way shape or form but appeal to our primal negative emotions so it to me it's this this line about walker is profound if you trace it out it's sort of saying you cannot keep the worst parts of the human arrangement out of anything mm, no i know and i do you feel like it's like thing where oh god this is what i'm kind of circles back to the beginning where i was talking about the problem i'm having with um uh, Brexit and the coronavirus at the moment do you feel I, I always feel like there's this sort of thing that I've got to accept I've got to accept people's ignorance You've, you you can't talk about Brexit William you can't have that tone with people you can't call people idiots you can't call people this yeah. and that the other you have to just fucking accept this now you know you have we've let the walkers in okay just right. deal with it stop well, stop shouting about it that's right. And I think that's a, a that's wise counsel. But stop shouting about it is different than I, as a citizen, can take action on my own behalf, on my partner's behalf, on behalf of my daughter, on behalf of everybody who else, you know, who's a citizen of good faith. And I think there's for for a lot of people in a weird way, me included, we we're there's a part of us that wants to win the argument and unmask the hypocrite and unmask the ignorance and win. And that part, we have got to put that away. Like we have to be the fools in charge of forgiveness and just go, okay, whatever, whatever story led you to that decision, it belongs to you and I can't change it. Screaming at you for five minutes is not going to undo whoever's been whispering in your ear for 40 years. So, yeah. so put that away. 
Let's just put that away. Now, there are a whole bunch of people who are disengaged from the political process and, and the real stakes of it who need to be re-energized. And the best way that you can um, sort of win them over is by behaving in a way that they can see is full of faith and a kind of fanatical optimism and looking at something like the coronavirus and saying, well, this is awful and it's revealing a lot of things that are broken in, in our, in our failed states and in our, in our communities, but also revealing a lot of things that have been invisible until now, how dependent we are on government functioning, how much science is intended to protect us, how much there are people who, how much inequality is being unmasked here. And those things we should try to tell stories about and be focused on and we should, you know, it should make us all the more politically active. Uh, so I, I agree with you that there, that impulse exists in me as well to sort of rail. But where I come to in um, the, the book I wrote about sort of the 2016 election and the bad stories that led to us is the, the, the worst story of all is the story that we're incapable of moral improvement. That's just bullshit. You know, the, the, the United States, every, every developed country is capable of moral improvement. And it invariably involves a tremendous amount of sacrifice and people have to become morally awakened. And it's not like Rosa Parks gets up on a bus and suddenly the Civil Rights Act is passed. It's like millions of people have to get up in small and large ways and put themselves at risk and inconvenience themselves because there's some larger good that that needs to happen or that they wish to have happen. And that's not because they're going to make the Charles Walkers of the world disappear. Not at all. It's because they're going to realize you can't let the walkers out. So you just have to have more people who are citizens of good faith. So that's that's my line and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I love that, man. That's, that's so cool. I, I, I do. I do love it. I just I just hope that um, every every you know, everyone that I've asked to read this book has read it. And if and if they haven't, they go out and and get it and 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 get your book to go with it um how long did it take you to write that book anyway and and by the way don't worry i've got an, an eye on the time so i won't keep you for much longer but i am going to get my wife to say hello to you because she's a fucking massive fan of yours oh how nice okay yeah. um i'm um, um, uh so the short answer to how long it took to write the book is like well probably i don't know you know six or eight months uh yeah. but the long answer is I've been writing it in pieces for 25 years, if you know what I mean. So yeah, yeah. That's, that six months is really me thinking about the book for many, many, many you know, years mm -hmm. and kind of it, the insights or whatever I have to say about the book have been accreting for a long time. And that's yeah. basically how it works with um, in, you know, with, with, with writers, all kinds of stuff is happening. You're not even aware that you're, you know, when you write your book, it will include, um, you know, that kid who at 17 or 18 is, is sort of having to, to run away and create that big mess behind him in, in order to get himself out into nature. If you see what I mean, right, that, yeah. that, that's some of the pre-writing that you're doing. Yeah. There's a guy called Chris Packham over here in, um, uh, I, I think you'd you'd love his autobiography. It's 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 fucking it's all it's it's very um it's got like a bit of a Joyce feel to it. Well, actually, a lot of Joyce, but it you'd you'd love it. I think. Um, all right, I'm writing it down. Chris Pack. Yeah, I think. Oh, what's it called? Something in the the sparkle jar or something. It's got a crazy old um, thing to it, but you'd love it. 
and and then you you look up his stuff and what he does oh you'll love him he's a He's, he's awesome. But anyway, look, my, my wife, Laura's here, so she's going to say hello, okay? Okay, all right. Okay. Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot, but, you know, it's just the way the world works. That's he's, all right. He's, I'm he's, happy put, to... he's put me on the spot as well, but it's lovely, right. to hear, it's lovely to hear your voice, Steve. Oh, well, I'm glad. Can I, can I lay eyes on you? Is that possible? Will you step into the camera's view? Oh, no, I have just washed my face. This is... <laughs> I was Good, just going we'll to bed. Clean. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I I've had a tough day today. Oh, it's been it's been a difficult one. How do you explain that to a to a toddler isolation and uh, social distancing? Oh my God. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have toddlers. I have you know slightly older kids, but yeah, I mean it must be terrible because their impulse is to to hug the world and yeah. to look. And yeah, I mean that that they're they're yeah, I mean it's going to be very odd to try to. Uh, sort of figure out all of the weird messaging because this is now going to be in your I think it's a daughter right in your kind of yeah. daughter's um, you know kind of in the groundwater is yeah, this yeah I know definitely yeah. Oh, yeah. but yeah it's, it, it's difficult but I know there's so many people who've got crazily difficult situations as well but I just wanted yeah. to say I absolutely loved Dear Sugar I miss it so oh. much and unlike my husband I don't really listen to podcasts but that was the podcast that I, I listened to religiously so um it's it was amazing there's a big, well, big sugar-shaped hole in my life <laughs> uh, me too me too people are like hey you know we miss it so much and I'm like dude <laughs> I loved getting together and talking with Cheryl. It was like the best job I ever had. Um, let, let me say a quick thing about your, your daughter, just because it's in my sugary nature, um, which is that the central thing that I think kids are picking up on, and always this is the case because they're such sponges, is just like how upset their parents are. And, um, and, and, and it's okay to be upset. You know, I think the central thing... That, that children experience is that they are unaware of the larger facts that are happening around them, but they're unbelievably acutely aware of the emotional and psychological reality of how their parents are feeling. And when there's a disjunction between those two, uh, it, it's very confusing for kids. So you're allowed to say to your toddler, mom had a tough day. And it was hard, and and boy, you know, I was feeling it was a struggle for me in the in the park when thus and such, and, and in fact, encouraged to say that rather than mm -hmm. you know somehow feeling oh I can't burden my child mm -hmm. like your kid's already burdened with it <laughs> yeah I know. That's, it with you. that's definitely uh, good good to hear thank you thanks for that advice I mean, yeah it. I mean, it's it's tough man because little little dudes like that they want to fuck the world and never like telling them you can't do that it's oh no oh and then just putting her in front of the ipad the whole time it's massive guilt i'm worried i'm gonna change yeah. her brain i need to yeah well it's tough because if both of you got i mean i i think that's real i'm not gonna sit there and say oh don't worry about that's like yeah. it's about that because those brains are growing and evolving mm. So that's a real thing. But it's also true that you have to be able to kind of figure out how much you can manage and how much you can't and who your supports are. Yeah. And you don't have access to most of those supports. <laughs> yeah. So, know. you know, nobody's going to be able to make a miracle out of that. You just have to sort of do the best you can and try to figure out if there are other things that you can 
um, you know, sort of sort of occupy her with. Yeah. But it's easier said than done. It's a toddler. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> oh, well. But um, <laughs> thank you so much. So lovely to hear from you. And um, I hope you guys have had a good chat. Oh, we had a wonderful chat oh, and, and delighted to make your acquaintance. And uh-huh. I hope I'll uh, meet you in person sometime. Definitely. Okay. All right, then. Lots of love. Bye. 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 Hello. Yeah. Yeah. That That's a, like nice a nice note to end on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it sounded like a good connection. That was good. That was good. End of the therapy session. So how much do I owe you now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Zero. I'm yeah, glad you read the book. $3,000. Yeah. 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 No, it was fucking awesome, man. Um, and maybe we'd do this again sometime. Um, have you have you got any other, like, are you working on anything else at the moment? I am. I'm working on fiction, um, which means that it might never come out. And if it does, nobody will read it, but that's fine. <laughs> but you know what you can do, William, that I think you would find interesting anyway, because yeah. it came up a little bit, is you might take a look at... Um, at, at the book bad stories because i think oh, yeah, you would yeah, 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 yeah i think you might find it interesting it's a, it's a it's a different lens on it's not a hot take campaign who's up who's down it's like really trying to take a step back and say how yeah, do you get brilliant, here man no, no sweat um, and thank you so, so much for your time and love to your family and thank aaron for me and everything okay take care man <laughs> see ya Oh